The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Lisa Miller now presents her lecture, The Awakened Brain. It's great to be here with you. I am particularly excited to share this with you because I think you will find traces in the awakened brain and in this body of work that mirror what Judaism has already known for thousands of years. So part of my joy in sharing this is that while scientists certainly cannot define spirituality, scientists, and in particular clinical scientists, are pretty good at identifying threads of lived human spirituality in our lives that are game-changing on the rest of our lives. So I'm going to bring this body of science into what is right now, as you've heard throughout the course of today, our national health and mental health crisis. As you probably know, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy in December issued a once in an administration advisory on par with, you may recall, the Surgeon General has determined that smoking may be dangerous for your health. Well, the Surgeon General put forward a 30-plus page document on the epidemic of the diseases of despair, addiction, depression, and even suicide. The rate of death by suicide in high school now rivals the rate of death by suicide in auto accident. It's the number one killer of high school students, and this is pushing down into middle school. So what does this mean, and how do we locate spiritual life in this, what you might call the dual pandemic? Right? Well, let's see here. There we go. Um, mental health generally does this. There's a tendency to locate suffering, to locate diagnoses in individuals. So she meets criteria for a dual diagnosis, and he meets criteria for major depression, and she meets DSM criteria for addiction. There's a locating in the individual of mental health. And yet, if you look at an epidemic, and where we are now with elevated rates across young adults that we have never seen before, it raises the possibility that perhaps we might also look into the air and water of our culture. What is the tidal wave really subsuming young adults? What is in the social ecology or the spiritual social ecology right now in our, in our culture? Well, as you're probably well aware, 40 years ago in the good attempt to be inclusive, our country threw all religion out of the public square and we've become a spiritually and religious non-conversant society. And perhaps the greatest loss has been the embrace of pluralism. And I want to know you. And knowing you means knowing your deep spiritual core. So perhaps the greatest price then of losing pluralism and becoming spiritually non-conversant is that the air and water no longer supports the formation, the strengthening of the natural spiritual core. 40 years is long enough for someone to grow up, have a child who grows up, and is at our door. 
He or she is at our door as a college student. Perhaps they're in the army or at an entry-level job, but there has never been a time where the institutions to receive young adults have faced such fragility. There's plenty of strong young adults, but never have so many suffered. Never have so many suffered with, again, addiction, depression, suicide. At my own institution of Columbia University, we had nine, suicide, nine publicly acknowledged suicides in one year. And the wellness coordinator had a job which had devolved to going out and cleaning out students' bedrooms for parents. How do we get ahead of this? And here's where, as my colleague shared with you, perhaps one of the most innovative institutions has been the Pentagon. The Pentagon came to me over two years ago. They'd read The Spiritual Child, which is a summative statement of science on natural spirituality in every child. And they said, we, we recognize this issue. We recognize that with the elevated rates of addiction, depression, and suicide, there has been concomitantly a decline in family faith tradition, in personal spiritual life. And indeed, the two statistically go hand in hand. And so the Army used the body of science that I'm sharing with you today as a roadmap to change basic training, to change how behavioral health partners with a pluralistic chaplaincy. This is a roadmap of science that I hand you as leaders, as one more arrow in your quiver as you lead institutions, educational initiatives, places of worship and formation. So what does this roadmap of science say? Well, this probably you already know in this room, but I want to be super clear. Through the lens of science, spirituality and religion, if you look at, for instance, large national polls, go hand in hand, S and R. There's an intersection, spirituality and religion, for about two-thirds of people in our country and many people in this room. My deep spiritual life is held in my faith tradition through the prayers. I'll give you an example. When I think of Shabbat, I think of my mother lighting Shabbat candles. And every time, every single Shabbat, tears would swell in her eyes of love. Thank you. Thank you, Hashem, for these children, for the week. Thank you for the gift of Shabbat. Tears. She embodied and felt a profound transcendent relationship through our family's Judaism, our practice of Judaism. So my family fell at the intersection. About 30% of people will say I am spiritual but not religious. I experience spiritual life in art, in nature, with my family. What science shows us is that whether or not we have experienced the rich embrace of a faith tradition such as our own, every one of us is born with a natural spirituality. We know this in science through a twin study. We look at twins raised together, twins raised apart, and any human capacity can be understood as being purely environmentally transmitted, inborn, or a combination thereof. Temperament is about half innate, half environmentally formed. I have three children. When my center child, who has asked to go by center child, <laughs> well, she slept through the night at 18 months. So four times a night for a year and a half, eh, I'd get up and I'd walk across the house and I'd soothe the baby. Half innate, 
half environmental, and of course she now soothes herself and sleeps through the night. She's a rising junior in college. <laughs> IQ is about 60% innate, 40% environmentally formed. The capacity through which we experience spiritual life is one-third innate. It is our birthright. We have two eyes, we have two ears and a nose, we are naturally spiritual beings. And what does science mean by that? Again, science does not define spirituality, but we are very good at identifying threads of lived human spiritual life that are profoundly game-changing. And the two that are innate are this, a direct relationship to Hashem, a direct felt dynamic relationship with our higher power, a transcendent relationship, not merely a matter of belief or theory, but felt. We are hardwired to be in relationship with a higher power. That is our birthright. And the story thickens. We'll bring up other levels of analysis to make this point. But the most important dimension of lived human spirituality is that we have a direct felt relationship with our higher power, who one may call Hashem, others may use a different name. Different names, one human capacity through which to know, feel, and connect into the transcendent relationship. The second important, it's also extremely important, they actually go hand in hand, is that just as we feel a direct connection to Hashem, we feel the sacred presence of Hashem in and through one another. And that is relational spirituality, love of neighbor. Our beautiful tradition knows these both well. The two transcendent relationships, one direct, one in and through one another, it turns out are not only our birthright, but perhaps one third, one -third innate, two thirds environmentally formed, they are the most important way in which we can shape and touch and affect one another. One-third innate, two-thirds environmentally formed. The rich embrace of our home, our parents, our grandparents, our Jewish community, the 10,000 exchanges by the locker, all weigh in to shape, to embrace the spiritual core. The two-thirds embrace includes our faith tradition, here, our Judaism, deeply shaping the innate human capacity through which we experience the transcendent relationship. This is our birthright. Now let's go back to our national crisis. 40 years ago, we threw all religion and spirituality out of the public square. We became spiritually non-conversant. It used to be that whether or not my family had a strong spiritual or religious life or both, I knew plenty of people who did. And I probably said the Pledge of Allegiance at school and I'd probably watched someone pray and I'd probably read some sacred text and I had some notion that morals, they aren't just cherry-picked, they were derived from our relationship to ultimate reality. That was in the air and water, that was in the culture. Well, it no longer is the case for a great number of young adults. And so, back to our challenge, the two-thirds embrace has become pretty empty for a lot of young people. And this leads to what in the army we call the atrophy of the spiritual core. So how can we be helpful? Given this escalation in the diseases of despair and the concomitant atrophy of the spiritual core, how can we be helpful? Well, there is hope 
not as simply an ideal, but written into life itself in this situation. 18 through 25 is part of a growth spurt. It actually starts with puberty, biological puberty, not just age. And there is a surge. It's marked by a 50% increase in the heritable contribution, a biological clock. Bring, and I hunger to know what is my meaning? What is my purpose? Actually, what is the meaning, the purpose? And everything you ever told me, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, maybe even rabbi, I don't know if that's true in my heart. I have to test that against my inner compass. Spiritual individuation is hardwired. Whether or not anyone tells us it's coming, there is a yearning for transcendence and the numinous and a nagging of the head about ultimate questions. It'd be nice if someone told us this is coming, and in Judaism we do. We have something very nicely set up, the bar and bat mitzvah, of course. But coming of age around the world, physically, has been marked with an augmented capacity for spiritual life and what we are then called to give to our community. When the spiritual core is supported, as it is in many of your communities. There is nothing in the clinical or social sciences as profoundly protective against the diseases of despair. A 19-year-old going through the window of risk for lifetime addiction is 80% protected, 80% less likely to meet DSM criteria of direction, DSM criteria and diagnosis for addiction if he or she has a strong personal spirituality. If they raise their hand and say, yes, I turn to Hashem for guidance in times of difficulty. My family is sacred. My faith community, my house of worship is a place where I feel great spiritual presence. Where there's a strong spiritual core, that teen is 80% less likely to be addicted, 70% less likely to take risks like jumping out of the second story window and driving 85 miles an hour. And in a study of studies, a strong personal spirituality is associated with 62% decreased risk of completed suicide. And that goes up to 90, excuse me, that goes up to 82% decreased risk of completed suicide when spiritual life is shared. When spiritual life is shared. Whether it is on Saturday in the synagogue, whether it is in a youth group. So if I told you there were a little tiny pill, I have three 18 through 25 year olds, a little tiny pill, and I could, well, give this to my kids or crush it up and put it in their eggs, but there was this little pill, and it would protect my teens at this level of magnitude against addiction, depression, and even suicide, I'd be sleeping on the pavement. I would wait out in the rain at Walgreens for that little tiny pill. And yet this is us. This is ours. And when we see like an impressionist painting and step back, this pattern of findings with protective benefits three, four times the size of what we would normally see in published science. I mean, normally if something's 15% protective, we say, wow. But here... This magnitude of protective benefit is so great that it looks like in order to be whole and resilient, in order to have full 
mental health, and to be developmentally integrated and whole, we must support the spiritual core. There's no such thing as whole child wellness minus a spiritual core. Let's get to our moment here, our post-COVID moment. This is a sample of 3,000 plus people, all of whom, at this very moment that they appear to you now, meet criteria for PTSD. Everyone here has post-traumatic stress in this study. And what you'll see is as you go out the x-axis, people suffer with more and more pain, more anxiety, higher levels of symptoms of trauma, more and more and more out the x-axis. But what's happening up the y-axis? More struggle up the y-axis, more growth. Even more struggle out the x, up the y, more growth. More struggle, more growth, more struggle, more growth, all the way to about the past the midpoint where the struggle is so great we need support to grow. But this inverted U-shaped curve, this umbrella, shows us that through struggle we grow. We are designed to grow through struggle. We don't get better and then start to figure out what matters in life. It's in the hardest time. The hardest time is the perfect time to ask the largest questions. What really is my life about? What, how have I parented? Is my work making the world better? Or if we feel a deep connection to Hashem, what are you asking me to become? What am I to be to give? This is the growth of our birthright, post-traumatic spiritual growth. Because this study by Sai and colleagues was followed by one by Tedeschi and colleagues. They said, how do I get up on that curve? How do I grow more? And there were four predictors, access to the reality of the experience, putting it in words, sharing it in a group, and then shining the light of spiritual awareness onto that very experience. And suddenly I realized that Hashem will forgive us both. And suddenly I realized that I was not to blame. And suddenly I realized we both can be forgiven. And the profound reshuffling of meaning that is more than becoming inured to the experience or weaving together the backward-looking narrative, a profound reshuffling of meaning, which is a foundationally spiritual process of transformation. The chief of chaplains in the Pentagon says we are made more inside. I would say we don't merely return to baseline. It is not recovery. It is renewal. So the question for us now in our own lives is what is to be renewed and what is possible beyond the way things used to be? We can move from what I call achieving awareness, narrowly speaking, strategizing, tactics, making our lives. What do I want and how do I get it? What do I want for my kids and how are we going to get it? There's nothing wrong with that narrative. It's just rather partial. It never really fills the bucket, and evermore, what do I want for myself, what do I want for my kids, suggests a great deal of control. And as we saw, and as people certainly know through your lived experience, control is a very thin layer of icing on a big pound cake of dynamism and flux. So when what do I want breaks down, and how am I going to get it, we have the opportunity to shift our conversation with life and ask not what do I want, but what is life showing me now? It is a dynamic relationship. 
So I'm gonna share with you a, a 90 second practice. I do this very often with my students at Columbia and they love it. So I share it with you. And if it's helpful, feel free to share it with someone else. I'm gonna invite you to just close your eyes, clear out your inner space, five breaths and revisit a moment. I invite you to set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you may invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. Anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that's so much more than anything you have or don't have, anything you've done or not done, your true, eternal, higher self, and ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite in a way that is comfortable for you, is right for you, your higher power. It may be Hashem. And ask them if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting there right now, what do they need to share? What do you need to know? What do they need to tell you now? And when you're ready, I invite you back. This is your birthright. The engagement of your natural spiritual awareness. This is your birthright. It has a home, body, mind, soul, from a monoist perspective. It has a neural correlate. It's here. You just engaged this. The broad and pervasive regions in red are a docking station. By no means am I claiming biological determinism. I'm not saying the brain made thoughts like a factory. I'm saying that hand in hand with what you just engaged were neurocorrelates. Whether it's an antenna, a docking station, a reification of your consciousness, this ran. These broad and pervasive regions of red are regions of perception, reflection, and orientation. And the more we engage into our natural spiritual awareness, the more we awaken our spiritual brain, the more we develop cortical thickness across these regions in red, the cortex is processing power, the more able we are to just walk in a room and see life in a foundationally spiritual way.
with 80% overlap, these regions are not thick but thin, in people with recurrent major depression, offering some evidence that recurrent major depression, right, offering some evidence that spiritual, sustained spiritual life may be neuroprotective against recurrence. And when we looked at a thick red brain today and said, how are you doing a year from now, there were lower rates of depression a year from now. We published this in JAMA Psychiatry in 2014. And it was the beginning of a series of studies on what I call the awakened brain, our natural capacity for transcendent awareness. The awakened brain, which I gave you as a gift, because it's my hope you enjoy and pursue the science, as one more arrow in your quiver. Science, of course, doesn't prove spiritual life. That needs no empirical proof. We can know that through direct awareness, intuition, mystical experience. But science is a very powerful tool at making institutional transformation. And it's this body of science in that book, thousands of people in the Pentagon have read that. Thousands of college students have read that. It is a roadmap of science to make institutional transformation and help people along who may be stuck. Now, you know at the table of human knowing inside ourselves, we have a logician, all of us. We have an empiricist. So too, we have an intuitive and a mystic and a skeptic. And when we bring all the forms of human knowing into dialogue around the table, our inner table, we literally pave the highways, we myelinate the tracks between regions of the brain so that we can ask a question of the head, what is my purpose, what is the purpose, and receive a knowing of the heart. Or have an illuminating experience of the heart and then discern its meaning through our head. K through 12 education very often in this country strengthens the empiricist, does a pretty good job with the logician, promotes the skeptic to be the bouncer at the door, and the intuitive and the mystic starve. So much so that by the time I get students in graduate school, I'll ask a simple assignment such as this. I'll say, could you bring back something you're willing to share with us from your spiritual path, a moment of deep connection to your higher power, a moment of illumination, a sacred moment. Bring it back and tell us about it. And the room is silent, and someone raises their hand and said, Dr. Miller, could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean about that assignment? And I said, yes, you can do anything. <laughs> as long as it is something you wish to share from your spiritual journey, a knowing of the heart, a spiritual experience. And I'll go home, and there's emails waiting for me. Can you tell me more about what you want in that experience? And this is not a one-week expedition. This goes round and round and round each week until finally every year someone raises his or her hand and says, you know, every week we ask Dr. Miller about this assignment. And then we go home, and we come back, and she explains it, and yet we come back again and ask her the next week. It occurs to me that we have spent so much time telling the professor what we think she or he wants to know, that we don't know what we know. That's the atrophy of the mystic, the intuitive. We don't know what we think. So when you put your child in a faith-based school, when your child goes to a Jewish school, a Jewish day school, or you bring your child to synagogue, whatever it is you do as a family to strengthen the spiritual core, 
you are strengthening their seat of transcendent awareness that allows them to live life with, a, with the fourth dimension, with a much deeper, deeper understanding, walk through life on spiritual bedrock. They are less addicted, less depressed, less likely to be suicidal. There's nothing in the clinical or social sciences as profoundly helpful to a parent or a grandparent than to know that we can be the rich two-thirds embrace of the environmental formation onto the innate spiritual core. Now, if the spiritual core is set up, references in the back, it lasts a lifetime. We may step away, we may have a time of occlusion and doubt, but we have myelinated the tracks, we have paved the highways to be able to get back to our natural spiritual awareness. Recap, we're innately spiritual beings. It can be shaped by our faith tradition. Judaism does a very good job at this. Life unfolds entirely differently. Well, what about the upside? And here I'm going to invite you to think of someone, a young person who you know, who had tons of optimism. Now someone with grit. Now someone with commitment. How many people were you thinking of? Yes, that's the most common answer. There's many wonderful young people. There's many young, wonderful young people. But it turns out the character strengths and virtues fall into the same kids. This is a sample of 5,500 college students. Across the x-axis are grit, forgiveness, gratitude, optimism, the character strengths and virtues that have inherent value and, of course, also provide traction in pursuing our aims, outward success. So the blue line represents all of those young people. These are organically derived categories using latent class analysis. The folks in blue are high in everything. They have grit. They have optimism. And this is a sample from a number of colleges. It's not just at my school or the next door school. The folks in green are in the middle. The folks in red are low in everything. This pattern suggests that the character strengths and virtues are best understood as a singular entity, character, or virtue. So how do I, again, I have three at home, how do I get my young adult up, up, up to the blue line? Over 80% of the time, high, medium, or low character is predicted by far left, daily spiritual awareness. This data is cross-sectional. When we looked longitudinally, it was daily spiritual awareness that predicted a year out character, virtue. Why is that? Why is it that trans the red brain, our spiritual awareness, is so essential to grit, to optimism, to character? Well, here's the hard work of growing up, emerging adulthood. Who am I? What's my purpose? And who are you? And what's our relationship about? And what's the nature of reality? And I might be pretty verbal and want to talk about it, or I might not be particularly verbal and just say everything is stupid and annoying. But existential angst, existential ennui, college counselors tell me two-thirds of my caseload is not DSM diagnosis. I mean, unless I say adult adjustment disorder. It's this. It is the booting up of our spiritual awareness. And with the booting up, it first often feels like a half-empty glass of spirituality, developmental depression. Benson and colleagues looked all around the world. They looked in Thailand, and they looked in Ukraine, and they looked in Uganda, and the US, and Canada. And no matter where I am a teenager, I start to say, remember, one-third innate, 
biological clock, what is my purpose, and what is my purpose in the big sense in relationship to ultimate reality? Whether or not I'm in a theistic country, I start wondering, is there an ultimate knowing guiding presence? We are hardwired through different chapters in our lives to have different spiritual passageways. Well, here in emerging adulthood, let's go back to our empty public square. Who am I? Oh, I know who I am. I am the one who scored highest in my entire grade on the placement test in math. Who am I? Actually, I was in the bottom quarter. Who am I? Oh, I know who I am. I am the international chess champion. Actually, I was cut from the JV team. I am my outward performance, my parts and pieces. Okay, let's tell it another way. Who am I? I am a child of Hashem. I am a soul on earth. I am a being of infinite worth. I am an emanation of source, the creator. What is it to be oh so smart? Oh, well, oh so smart is an endowment. It is a gift. It is a capacity through which to carve my calling, my purpose, my contribution. Well, why is one a more resilient proposition? Because given the very same level of math acumen, I graduate and I go off to, where do I go off to? I go off to the University of Miami and I'm in the engineering school and suddenly I'm not in the best 10%. I'm in the middle. Actually, I'm dropping below average. I'm losing me. So I'm also successful and I have tons of money and then suddenly I lose it and I'm in the paper and everybody knows what's left. Who am I? I am a child of Hashem. I am a soul on earth. Well, that's very disappointing. That story is still equally disappointing, but it's not an annihilation of who I am. Why does this matter? Because outside of Palo Alto High School and in Rye, New York, after clusters of suicide, much like that which faced Columbia, in Palo Alto they put a fence along the train track and a guard. Because if you can delay a kid for five minutes from taking his or her life, they're unlikely to do it. Who am I? Every single day the way you look at me, grandma, grandpa, rabbi, Jewish day school teacher. I'm so glad to see you, knowing me just as who I am. It means I am a soul on earth, versus how was the math test? Did you win today? Thanks. Well, if I'm a soul on earth, you're a soul on earth. And our relationship is about interest and encouragement. On a tough day, it is about forgiveness. But what it's not about is narrow competition, where you got that 96 and I got the 87. Narrow competition. And in fact, I am so glad you got that 96. I'm going to need you. Can you help me? <laughs> we are sisters and brothers. It's another way of being. It is far less fragile. This is our birthright. When we engage our deep spiritual awareness with the challenges that we face every day, when we say, what was COVID really about for me, for my family? Hey, what about for us as a society? And instead of looking historically backwards, say, not what did I want and not get, but what did life show us now? What Hashem did you reveal to us now? It's the beginning of a new way of being. I'm going to share with you one last practice. I invite you to close your eyes, clear out your inner space, five breaths. 
I invite you to remember a time, identify a moment where you had gotten everything set up right for what you wanted, that big red door. It could have been a promotion, it could have been a marriage, it could have been a job, it could have been an admission to a school. You wanted that red door and you wanted it very, very, very much. So much so that you prepared. Tactically, you've done your research, you've gotten everything in line A plus B plus C. You've done the hard work. You've done everything right and as you reached for your red door and grabbed the handle, it was stuck. And you turn it and you shake it and it's still stuck. It doesn't make sense, it doesn't really seem fair. Maybe you're angry, in time maybe a little depressed about it. No red door. But only because that red door was stuck. You had no choice but to pivot. You may have pivoted 25 degrees, 90 degrees, 120 degrees. And there caught your eye, you might not have said they even exist, was a bright yellow open door. Wide open, and on the other side, someone who was so much more right for you. A partner, a friend, a mentor who showed you a love of a field that became your own. A school where you met your spouse, or had just the right culture where you felt at home. Something on the other side of that yellow door wasn't what you wanted, it was better than what you wanted. And your life today is very different because you crossed through over the threshold of the yellow door into a new landscape. And as you go back to that time where the red door was stuck and you did a hairpin turn towards that yellow door, was there anyone, maybe a grandparent, a friend, a rabbi, a helper, a healer, maybe someone you met for two minutes at the Starbucks or at a conference, on the bus. Something they said sent you to that yellow door. Something they were or did sent you to the yellow door. They were perhaps a trail angel. And as you step back now, way back, three steps, four steps, and you see the stuck red door, the hairpin turn, the trail angel, and the big yellow door, way, way back. How is life really built? How are the most important things that come into our lives? From whence do they come? What is the source? And stepping further back, all the way back, where in this portrait of your road of life is Hashem? Where is your higher power? And I invite you in your own time to add two more hairpin turns. You're already using your birthright. You're already using an awakened brain. You are already in deep dialogue with sacred presence in and through all life. So I thank you. I invite you to join us as we support young adults through Awakened Campus and Awakened Schools. It is always free for them. This isn't a business. 
we do it for free. And I'll share with you perhaps one of the most beautiful findings in science in closing. The red brains, the people who through the most difficult moments of their lives deepened their spiritual heart, strengthened their spiritual awareness. Those folks with red brains had a particularly strong thick cortex. They had perhaps such a strong way of spiritually living life that when we invited them in to our lab and said, come on in, sit down, close your eyes, and put an EEG cap on their head, they gave off the wavelength of a meditating monk. They were in a sustained state, as many of you are, throughout the day of spiritual awareness. The wavelength they gave off is called high amplitude alpha. High amplitude alpha can be jump-started through Prozac to get us out of depression, but when you take away the Prozac, ampl high amplitude alpha goes away. Developmental depression, despair, is an invitation for a deepening of our spiritual life. And when we say yes to it, and when we do that work, and deepen our spiritual awareness, we strengthen the red brain. We increase the strength of alpha, high amplitude alpha. Why is that important? High amplitude alpha has another name. It's Schumann's resonance. Schumann's resonance is the wavelength of all nature. From the Earth's crust up one mile all the way around the Earth, nature vibrates with the base ratio of Schumann's resonance, Schumann's constant. The spiritually, this means the spiritually engaged brain vibrates with the wavelength of nature. The felt sense of oneness, the perception of oneness is mirrored in the clear oneness of energy. Someday we'll call it something else. And I actually think my grandkids will laugh. They'll say, Grandma measured sacred consciousness with a wavelength. But we do return to nature. We return to our nature. We return to the oneness. And this is ours. So what is suffering? It is the opportunity of our lifetimes. Thank you. Do we have time for a couple questions? The question was about church and state and public institutions, whether it's a school or the Pentagon or anybody else. And what the science shows is that the natural spiritual core, the capacity through which we experience spiritual life, is essential to health, wellness, and whole person development. Now, when we are in a Jewish setting, that is told through the faith tradition of religion. But to adopt a soldier-centered or student-centered point of view, how is your spiritual core? Where does your spiritual core take you? I'll give you a better example. In my class at Columbia, I have people from all over the world. And we meet in a circle and we talk about spirituality this way. There's one ground rule, which is all sharing starts with the first person, I. And woman, woman will say, yes, you know, my grandma, she tattooed me when I came of age, and it linked me to my mother and my mother's mother and my mother's mother's mother through time. And the next person will say, yeah, I got that because my grandma, she taught me to pray. I'd come home from school and grandma would be at the table, she'd listen to me, and then we'd say a prayer at the end of the day. So when I think of God, it's kind of God and my grandma all rolled up into one. And someone else will say, yeah, I got that, because my grandma, she's passed, but I feel her presence with me. 
and when I'm in a really tough place, I can feel my grandma protecting me. And someone else will say, you know, I got that because I don't know how I feel about my family's faith tradition, but I know energy can never be destroyed. So yeah, that's your grandma. What they're doing, that's pluralism. It's, it's the way that the public square could be, where everyone speaks in the first person of their own spiritual life, and everyone else respectfully listens to know them. So it's not a discussion of whose theology is best or how one should understand God. It is a common sharing from the heart of one's own spiritual life. And in sharing from the spiritual core, it strengthens the spiritual core. There's no specific religion and there's no way of being or not being. It's an inclusive understanding that everyone has a spiritual core and it belongs here. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.